Our scripture reading this morning is found in Matthew chapter 7, verses 1 through 6. Hear God's word to us. Judge not that you be not judged, for with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged, and with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when there is the log in your own eye. You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Hello. How much are they asking? Well, that's a lot of money for a deck. Well, I hate to tell you this, but you're getting robbed. Uh, did you hear me? You're getting robbed. Ow! Stop! If you're interested, there's a whole slew of those types of commercials online. Um, just You can spend a whole afternoon. Well, good morning. Um, my name is Gabe Coyle, and I'm the campus pastor here at Christ Community's downtown campus. And we're going to do something very crowd-esque, okay? By a show of hands, all right? So everybody knows this is a show of hands thing. By a show of hands, how many of you before this morning have heard Jesus' opening words, judge not? By a show of hands. Yeah, that's pretty much all of us, right? Yeah. <laughs> and where do we most often hear it? But slung at Christians, which to be sure is often for good reason. But this morning I want to begin by saying even in the midst of all that, I think it is more fair to say that judging isn't just a Christian problem. Instead, judging is a human problem that also shows up in Christians. Okay. Why else do we look across creeds and cultures and find the rich wagging their finger down at the poor or the poor shaking their, their fist up at the rich? Why else do we find Republicans damning uh, Democrats or Democrats, Republicans, urbanites who scoff at suburbanites and vice versa? You know, we're guilty of this. Yeah. And on and on the list could go. As we think about individuals or groups of individuals condemning other individuals or groups of individuals because they don't match up to their standard. And you can even have people who look down their nose at people who look down their nose at people. It can get really complex. But even still, as frustrating and as destructive and as fragmenting as that can be, the solution is much more complex than just eradicating judging in all of its forms from our communities. For certain forms of judging are necessary for the flourishing of our communities. For example, imagine if teachers never graded the performance of their students. What if a citizen never felt the importance of sitting on a jury? What if failed leaders were never held accountable for the harm they inflicted on others? You see, the more you explore a world that is completely void of all forms of judging, you actually find a landscape that is also void of forgiveness. Because you cannot forgive someone of something 
that has not been judged as wrong. And the more we explore this world that's completely void of all forms of judging, you find that this is actually not a world that's livable, nor is it desirable. Which raises the question, what if we've misunderstood Jesus' popular words here? What if we've misjudged judging? And so have oversimplified the problem and are missing out on the fullness of life that Jesus is calling us to. In our passage this morning, I think Jesus' wisdom is profound and it can be summarized in a simple statement. Yes, do not be judgmental, but don't be stupid either. <laughs> don't be judgmental, but don't be stupid either. And maybe you don't think that Jesus would say it this way or that he would even say this. And look, I was in that camp for a bit too. And then I started digging into these words. And Jesus' profound brilliance surpasses my simple solutions that oftentimes don't fit within the complexity of real human relationships or the complexities of authentic community. Now, if you're new with us, over the past couple months, we've been walking through the historical account of Matthew's gospel and Jesus' life in the first century. And there's this uncanny characteristic we've discovered about Jesus and that all of our concepts of the good life or the good person, Jesus tends to just flip them on their head, which is kind of why we've dubbed this section of Matthew's gospel the upside-down kingdom. Time and again, we've seen in the best sermon ever preached, the Sermon on the Mount, that Jesus is inviting each and every one of us to live the life we were designed to live if we will trust him. And that if is a big one. And what we find in the good life that Jesus offers is a life that is eradicated of anger, of lust, of revenge, of slander, and even worry in the depths of who we are. And it's replaced now by this holy other kind of love that even puts ourselves in harm's way for our oppressors. It's radical. But when we do this pursuit... We're engaged in a life that Jesus has called us. This pursuit of living wholly rightly and, and loving wholly rightly, it also sparks a different danger because we're imperfect people, each and every one of us in here, living next to imperfect people who are neighbors, coworkers, church members, families, and friends who may not even be on the same pursuit. And in this fertile soil of the pursuit of righteousness or rightness, can spark up the weeds of judgmentalism or even an overall lack of discernment. Cue Jesus' words of wisdom. Don't be judgmental, but don't be stupid either. Okay? So let's look together and explore what Jesus is talking about here by turning in your Bibles to Matthew chapter 7 or your, your Bible apps. And if you're using one of our community Bibles, it's found on page number 812. 812. And let's look here beginning in verse 1. Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you pronounce, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. The standard you hold others to, you will be held to. And listen, what Jesus isn't saying, who earlier in the Sermon on the Mount calls us to be perfect like our Heavenly Father is perfect, he's not obliterating any overarching standards. 
nor is he giving us a blanket prohibition against all forms of judgment. As we saw last week with the word worry, the same is true with the word judge in that it can mean both positive or negative and have both positive and negative connotations depending on its context. And that's where we've got to start is in the context of our passage. But even as we look at the broader breadth of Scripture, just to prove the point, Paul invites the people of God to judge. Here as we see in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 15. He says, I speak as to sensible people, judge for yourselves what I say. This is the same word, the same original word. He's actually calling you to make an important assessment as to what is trustworthy and what is good. And when we come to Jesus in Matthew 7, Jesus isn't now calling us to be mindless people within disingenuous relationships, such that we actually never do appropriate assessment within our relationships. Instead, what Jesus is saying is that there are certain kinds of judging that will come back to bite you. And the most ravenous form of judging is a harsh, judgmental spirit. That's what we see here in Matthew chapter 7. And with that nuance in mind, let's ask the question, what does this bulldog of the heart look like? And why is Jesus warning us against it? I'd love, as we explore this harsh, harsh judgmental spirit, to kind of give you the ABCs of the language of a judgmental spirit. And a judgmental spirit, it attacks, it belittles, and it condemns. It attacks, it belittles, and it condemns. First, a judgmental spirit attacks a person rather than evaluating a perspective. We can agree to disagree and still love each other sacrificially. That could be a lyric in a song, by the way. We can agree to disagree or love each other and still love each other sacrificially. That's what's called civility and living in the same community together. We don't all have to have the exact same viewpoints to be in community. But when, the, when suddenly you stop caring about the nuances of someone's worldview and you shift to go and attack the person and their character, you go ad hominem. And your arguments, be careful because the fangs of judgmentalism are showing. Next, a judgmental spirit belittles someone's worth rather than critiques someone's work, okay? This is where the pronouncement of insufficiency is more a statement on the human dignity of a person, okay? Instead of coming alongside and doing a constructive critique of the quality of someone's work, that's actually healthy, it's in those moments where enough is enough and you either utter, to, utter it under your breath or you shout it out loud. He is worthless, right? What a waste of space. It suddenly becomes a belittling of the human dignity that every human being, regardless of where they are in this pursuit, made in the image of God, is endowed with indelibly. Lastly, a judgmental spirit has condemnation as the goal. Not restoration, not love, but condemnation as the goal. You're sizing someone up not to help shape them up, but instead in order to exclude them or ostracize them. You want them to feel pain. You want them to sting. And you're not satisfied until you taste blood. Beware of a judgmental spirit. And maybe you're thinking, man, I wish my boss, my coworker, my neighbor 
this particular group were here to listen to these words. They could only see themselves. But you know where I'm going with this, right? <laughs> this has little to nothing to do with them. If you start there, you've instantly revealed your heart. You're more judgmental than you think you are, too. You're more judgmental than you think you are. Hidden grudges, ridiculous standards, we've all got them. Who in your mind right now are you looking down your nose at? When you get that space at work, that downtime, and you're shaking your fist at them, who are you judging? Now, here's the danger in all of this, is that a judgmental spirit will always leak out, and it will always backfire. Even in what you say, it will now transform in how you say it. It will come with a biting tone. Even when you try to say something good, it just leaks out. And then it'll always backfire on you. Always. Because when has judgment, judgmentalism ever helped anyone progress? Judgmentalism always dives deeper our feet into the soil and it pushes relationships even further away. It's never worked to actually bring transformation And then if we follow the logic of Jesus here, imagine if you were held up to your own standard. If your own value and self-worth was determined by every time you said ought, must, and should, and a running blog started capturing the content of that. And then at the end of your life, that became the grid in which you are justified or not. Would you pass your own test? I know I wouldn't. Okay, so let's be very clear. I know I would not. And I would fail, and I'm quick to panic and start pointing at other people and say, oh, well, at least I'm better than them. They don't have any idea what they're doing. And slowly I'm trying to build myself up, and as loud as I try to say it with utter confidence, inwardly I'm being eaten away by my own shame. It always backfires. So why do we keep doing this? <laughs> what are we missing that this is actually a normal component of our lives, that this slides off the tip of our tongues and faraway conversations out of the limelight in the darkness rather than driving towards encouragement or edification or constructive relationships? Listen to what Jesus says in verse 3 through 5. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye? But do not notice the log that is in your own eye. Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there is the log in your own eye? You hypocrite. First take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye, the brother's and sister's eye. Look, I don't often think of Jesus as sarcastic, but I can't help but imagine he has this smirk on his face when he's describing the absurdities of a judgmental spirit. I mean, can you imagine someone coming up with a log the size of a beam that holds up a house just protruding from their face, and they see their brother or their sister with this little tiny speck thing sticking out of the corner of their eye, and they like feel their way over and say, hey, 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 bro, that thing you got in your eye, it's just driving me nuts. Why don't you get your life together? It's absolutely ridiculous, and maybe we're even familiar with this illustration because it's pretty often used in our culture and yet Jesus is talking about us because this is what we do. We can laugh, but it should sting simultaneously. But why? Jesus asks two rhetorical questions in here. Why do you do this? Or how do you think you can actually come alongside of someone when your vision is completely obscured? 
And the sentence structure is very emphatic. Basically, Jesus is saying, <laughs> is you think you're more awesome than you are. You think you're more awesome than you are. Now, the word that Jesus actually uses in the text is not something foreign to his sermon. Time and again, he's talked about this one particular word and the emphasis and the climax of this passage is as if Jesus is saying, you hypocrite, <laughs> you're living a lie. You're not as awesome as you think you are. And this is a part of the message of Jesus we don't often like to talk about, but it's crucial to the message of the Christian faith. This is a part of the good news, the bad news that each and every one of us here has stuff that's messed up in our lives. You've got logs in your eyes. I got logs in my eyes. We're all messed up together. And it's actually in this corporate recognition that we find the freedom that we don't have to put up a facade any longer. And we can come with transparency about our brokenness. Now, I want to be sure and communicate that what Jesus isn't calling us to is a self-loathing. This, oh, heaping upon myself that suddenly can become this weird competition. I'm the worst. No, I'm the worst. I'm the worst. Come on. Get over yourself. We're all the worst. And the deal is what Jesus is calling us to is an honest assessment of the brokenness that is engaged and lodged in the very crevices of our, the deepest parts of who we are. And here's why this is so crucial. When you don't see your own flaws, you will exaggerate other people's flaws. When you don't see your own flaws, you will exaggerate other people's flaws. Another way of saying this is if you can't see yourself clearly, you will never be able to see other people clearly. You'll find yourself obsessed with the speck in someone else's eye and completely miss the log in your own, which was the MO of the scribes and Pharisees in Jesus' day. And we just keep perpetuating this cycle of destruction in our relationships. One of my favorite books on leadership development is by a guy named Patrick Lencioni, titled The Advantage. And in it, he highlights one way we regularly show our log and eye disease, you know, basically. And it's called The Fundamental Attribution Error. The Fundamental Attribution Error. Listen to what he writes. At the heart of the fundamental attribution error is the tendency of human beings to attribute the negative or frustrating behaviors of their colleagues to their intentions and personalities while attributing their own negative or frustrating behaviors to environmental factors. So listen to the example he gives. For instance, if I see a dad at the grocery store, so this one landed with me, obviously, scowling at his five-year-old daughter and wagging his finger in her face, I'm likely to conclude that that guy has an anger problem and needs some counseling. If I find myself scowling and wagging my finger at my two-year-old daughter, I'm likely to conclude that my behavior is caused by my unruly child or that I'm just having a tough day, daggummit, you know? <clears throat> you know, that kind of judging of others, but then giving ourselves the benefit of the doubt, that hits way too close to home, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah. And all of a sudden, you know, it doesn't have to be just kids and parents. Imagine you're at work, and you show up late to a meeting. Traffic was bad. I was having a conversation with my boss and I wanted to be respectful. I was in a conversation with a coworker that I just couldn't end or that would be rude. But one of your teammates shows up late to a meeting. They are just so disrespectful. 
They don't care about this team. They're lazy. <laughs> you know? Slowly or maybe quickly, it escalates where we begin to judge what we can't see, motivations and intentions, and completely miss what we can see, the logs in our own eyes. Until we can honestly see our own flaws, we will consistently exaggerate the flaws of others. So there's the bad news. <laughs> you're more judgmental than you think, and it's really because you think you're more awesome than you actually are. So there's that. Somebody had to tell you, and it might as well be Jesus. Um, but here's the good news. And the reason Jesus kind of lays the bad news down and calls us to the carpet with our own hypocrisy is to prime the pump for us to be willing and able to actually accept the good news that we so desperately need. And here it is. You don't have to be that person anymore. You're not fatalistically stuck to always hold those perceptions and to be stuck in this brokenness. You don't have to be that person anymore. But how? How can we eradicate a harsh, judgmental spirit to never allow it to take residence in our hearts? It's by listening to the brilliance of Jesus here and actually following his brilliant order that we see detailed out in this text. And the first step is always deal with your own blind spots first. Always deal with your own blind spots first. Another way Jesus' words, judge not, have been used in our culture and taken out of context is to say, hey, no one has the right to disagree with how I live my life. Who I want to be and how I'm going to choose to live is my prerogative. Who are you to judge? You don't know me, right? But even a cursory reading of this passage shows how far that is from what Jesus is seeking to teach and explain. He isn't calling for a kibosh, an all-confrontation, but he is giving us a different order that's crucial for approaching others in health, okay? Instead of beginning with, did you see what they said over there? You start with, did I, do I have that same speech coming out from me? Did you, did you see what they're doing? Do I see that in my heart first? It starts with self-reflection and self-confrontation before we ever take the door outside of our own perspective here, before you begin to approach others. You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye. We've all got logs in our eyes. We've all got blind spots. Where are your blind spots? And I know that sounds ridiculous because if you can see your blind spots, then they're not really blind spots. Come on, Pastor Coyle, get on with it, right? Well, stick with me. This is why I think each and every one of us needs two crucial components in, our, in a regular diet of both. is a regular diet of Scripture and diverse Christian community. A regular diet of Scripture and diverse uh, Christian community. You see, we believe that God's Word reveals God's design for all of life. So much so that we actually... Work hard to provide a daily reading plan here at Christ Community. It's called Open Here. And what we basically do is we bring a digestible chunk of scripture and guide you through each month. There's bookmarks on the flip side of the dividers there. If this is a rhythm you struggle to engage, I'd encourage you to grab one and start it tomorrow. Start it tomorrow. Set some time in the morning to be engaging scripture and letting it and the authors of Scripture, by the power of the Holy Spirit, begin to reveal and challenge your blind spots. 
because God's word reveals God's design for all of life. And we've got logs in our eyes that scripture that is speaking to and seeking to remove. You know, as C.S. Lewis says, I believe in Christianity as I believe that the sun has risen. Not only because I see it, but because by it, I see everything else. And I would go on to say, even your own flaws. Even your own flaws. But even here, it can't be just you and Jesus in your Bible, right? Because we're really good at justifying our logs. We get comfortable with those logs. They just become part of the furniture, <laughs> you know? And even they can be culturally accepted logs, which is why we need brothers and sisters in Christ who come from diverse backgrounds, different racial, cultural, socioeconomic, and generational backgrounds who can challenge us, who have the permission to do some surgery on our eyes, people you trust. Do you have people like that in your life that you say, hey, do I got logs in my eyes? Or even when you don't want people to point it out and you're running from, you, from them, they chase you down <laughs> as you're tripping over your own log, you know, like... <clears throat> They say, hey, 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 you see what's going on in your life? Obviously, you don't. <laughs> Always deal with your blind spots first. Where are yours? Is scripture a part of your regular diet? Is diverse Christian community a part, an intentional part of your life? You see, only then are we able to humbly come alongside of people you can help. This is an important order. First, take the log out of your own eye, Jesus says, and then, that's not a period, that's a comma, okay? Notice your grammar. And then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. I think for some of us, that's terrifying, that second half. The first half, we can get behind. Our culture is actually kind of behind the first half. But the second half is terrifying because we've heard stories where people actually approach others and say hard things and relationships get messy and then they fizzle. Or maybe in our hyper-individualistic culture, we're afraid of being called judgmental. Even if you aren't attacking or belittling or condemning someone, but you just approach someone for their good, out of humility, and yet you can still be labeled as judgmental. Hear me, we need each other. Yes. We need each other desperately, don't we? I need you. And you need me, somehow. And as we come to this text, we hear a call to be more than just nice people. You know, we grew up hearing, if you don't have anything nice to say, then don't say anything at all. Which to some degree is true, but it should never, never be an excuse to now speak honestly and openly with one another. As soon as that becomes a barrier, then we've missed the mark of what Jesus is calling us to. We need to engage what the Apostle Paul calls truth and love which is meant to replace this harsh judgmentalism. You see, harsh judgmentalism often thrives in secrecy and assumption, where speaking the truth in love brings it into the light and actually asks questions and engages conversation. It actually builds on trust. You know, interestingly enough, more and more companies are noticing this for the workspace as well. One such article by Kim Scott, she's the acclaimed coach for leading tech companies like Twitter. She writes about how one of the most crucial components in a flourishing corporate culture is what she calls radical candor. Radical candor. Listen to how she describes this. Radical candor then results from a combination of caring personally, 
but challenging directly. But what does it look like in practice? Scott has created an acronym to help people remember, H-H-I-P-P, okay? H-H-I-P-P. Radical candor is humble. It's helpful. It's immediate. It's in person. And in private if it's criticism, and public if it's praise, and it doesn't personalize. And this, she goes on to say that last P makes a, a key distinction. My boss didn't tell me, hey, you're stupid. <laughs> that doesn't really give you any place to grow. That's a statement on your worth and your value as a human being, not on constructive criticism to help someone else grow. Instead, she says, hey, my boss told me you sounded stupid when you said um a lot in your presentation, which is a way of saying, let's work on that skill. I know you being a human being made in the image of God have value and you have the potential for growth. But that right there wasn't a great example, okay? So let's grow together. And then Kim Scott, she actually goes on to give alternatives to radical candor. If radical candor isn't what you choose, you normally fall in three other camps. The first is this obnoxious aggression, she calls it, which is a lot like this harsh judgmental spirit. It's an obnoxious aggression. The second is a manipulative insincerity. You actually don't care about the other person, but you don't care enough to say anything either. <laughs> and uh, you could care less what anybody thinks. Um, so it's very manipulative, and it just kind of avoids all confrontation altogether. And the last is a ruinous empathy, which is, in some degrees, like this manipulative insincerity, but the difference is it's twisted. And that you can convince yourself, I love them so much, I can't say anything that's going to hurt their feelings. And what you do is you destroy them because they're drowning in their own destruction. Specifically in the workspace, she says, what you find is that teams become more and more ineffective with this ruinous empathy. And the person who is bring about, bringing about subpar results, nobody talks to until it's firing day. And then that person gets fired. And is that really the most loving thing to do? A ruinous empathy that never really is honest where, where that person should grow and needs to grow with honest coaching that comes alongside. Would you choose any of those alternatives? I wouldn't. And I think there's a lot here to her wisdom that resonates with what Jesus is calling us to here and actually what the Apostle Paul mentions when another church in Galatia is trying to wrestle through their specks and their logs in Galatians chapter 6, verse 1, the Apostle Paul writes, Brothers and sisters, if anyone is caught in any transgression, which is a way of crossing a boundary, whether it be relationally in power, whether it be against creation, any sort of crossing a boundary, you who are spiritual should restore him in a spirit of gentleness or her in a gentle spirit of gentleness. Keep watching yourself, though, lest you too be tempted. What Paul is highlighting here is that it's kind of what we've already been talking about. This coming alongside isn't condemning harshly. Instead, it's restorative with its goal. And it's gentle. Which is what you got to be when you're seeking to remove a speck out of someone's eye, right? You can't just get in there and get the sucker out. You might take the eye out with it. Um, instead, you come with this gentleness. Which, to be clear, isn't synonymous with niceness. Okay, that's not what we find in the cultural definition of this word behind gentleness. It's honest, it's candor, 
It has this radical candor, but it still comes caring for the other. And this is only possible, what Paul talks about here in Galatians 6.1, if we follow Jesus' brilliant order. If we've let somebody else do surgery on our eyes, if we've felt the pain and the hardship of being confronted and leaving ourselves vulnerable to critique, that we might grow and say, okay, I do have a log in my eye. This hurts to hear this, but I need your help to remove it. Please help me. Then when you come to confront someone else, you know the pain. When somebody pushes back against you, you say, okay, I get that. That happened to me too. That's hard to hear challenging words. And you can not only come with humility, but even sympathy, and not a ruinous empathy, but a very candor empathy, because you've been there. You felt the confrontation deep within your heart. You've put yourself in a relationship where people can challenge you, and you're not coming as a hypocrite. And out of this love, you're irritated by the irritation that's in your brother's and sister's eyes. Because you long for them to no longer have this sort of irritation or this destruction in their own hearts and minds. But even still, I know me here, okay? And I know how deceptive my motivations can get so quickly when I start getting into these confrontational conversations. And so I want to invite us to ask a question, a question I have to ask my heart when I engage this process. And it's why am I so focused on their spec in the first place? Why am I so focused on their spec in the first place? If you are more enraged at the spec you see in your brother's eye more than any sin you've experienced in your own life, that should be a red flag. Because suddenly you're looking down your nose at them. If you're more angry at someone else than you've ever been at your own sin, open your eyes. What do you really hope for out of this conversation? Is it revenge? Finally, self-validation? Is it to prove to everyone you are right? If it's anything short of sacrificial love, you're missing the mark. We come with radical candor, but always with the love of God that we see in 1 Corinthians chapter 13. The church in Corinth is going through all kinds of turmoil and mess with Jews and Gentiles having racial bias against one another. And you find this fragmented community and Paul steps in and says, hey, 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 hey. This is not what the body of Christ is called to be. Instead, love is patient and kind. Love does not envy or boast. It is not arrogant or rude. It does not insist on its own way. It is not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Truth must still be present. Love bears all things. It doesn't have a short fuse where you can just quit on a community. It believes all things. It hopes all things. It endures all things. Why am I so focused on their spec? in the first place. But we can't stop there, okay? First, yes, we always deal with our own blind spots first. Then we humbly come alongside of those we can help. And yes, don't be judgmental, but we can't be stupid either. And this is where verse 6 really brilliantly shines. Verse 6, do not give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Now, <clears throat> by a show of hands again, 
Before this morning, how many of you knew that these were words of Jesus? Yeah, about, one, about half of you compared to what raised their hand at the beginning. These are not easy words, and let me be very clear, they're not easy to translate either. So I'm going to step out here humbly as I seek to navigate this, but this is where I think Jesus is going with this. Yes, sin is destructive, and it should break our hearts when loved ones, when family members, when friends, when other church members choose cycles of destruction and sin in their own life. But Jesus wants us to know that there isn't just a necessary how in approaching others. There's actually an if. Not just a necessary how, but an if. We have to learn to let people make their own decisions. You have to learn to let people make their own decisions, which means at times we stop pushing good things on people who've shown they're disinterested. That means you're in conversation with them, by the way. That means you're pressing them a little bit. Now, you may have noticed here that Jesus' language changes. It goes from talking about brothers and sisters to now talking about pigs and dogs. And to be sure, Jesus isn't speaking to the human value or dignity of any person, nor is he bringing broad brushstrokes to any ethnic or cultural group. But be very clear, he's giving us an illustration. You see, dogs and pigs in first century Jewish culture were unclean animals who ate everything that no one else wanted, the scraps, the garbage. And giving pigs jewelry and dogs Bibles, okay, that's not only unhelpful, it's downright frustrating. And this is why they trample or literally treat with disdain the good things you present. And if you keep pressing these good things... Jesus says they'll turn and attack you, which more often than not, he uses more for demonic language than anything else, interestingly enough. Because out of jewelry, out of Bibles, and you, you're at least edible. <laughs> you see, Jesus suggests there are times when you might see someone destroying their life, a community destroying itself. And the right thing to do is to let them follow their own path, sometimes. Sometimes. This doesn't mean you, you give up on them, you don't stop praying for them, and you're there ready when stuff hits the fan because it surely will. And you're ready and willing to come alongside and once again be humble and willing to help. But he also suggests that if you can't let people make their own decisions, then you've got something toxic in your heart just as much. Oftentimes, this is called a savior complex. A savior complex. We should be broken when we see those we love entangled in webs of destruction, but when you need to be the one who saves them. You need to be that person. Your whole self-worth and identity isn't wrapped up in not only letting them see the speck, but forcing them to get it out of their eye. It's going to destroy you. And listen, if Jesus isn't a good enough savior for them, you're not going to be any better. Let people make their own decisions. Don't do something God himself won't do. Yes, first, always start with your own blind spots. Then humbly come alongside of people you can, but be free of guilt. You can't live other people's lives for them. Let people make their own decisions. 
And it's in moments like that, if that's really hard for you, I want you to ask a very self-reflective question. Whose heart is on trial here anyway? Whose heart is on trial here anyway? Because listen, until you yourself have embraced a better verdict from a better judge than yourself, you will forever turn every conversation, every situation as an opportunity to build your own self-worth report, building your own case. And so you'll open that case of self-worth and you'll begin to judge others. Well, I'm better than them. Or you'll open it up and start adding in inserts of community service. Look at all these people I tried to save. And nothing could be more antithetical to the gospel by basing your self-identity and your worth on other people's actions. Instead, what we hear in the gospel, what Matthew is screaming off the pages, is an invitation to rest in the fact that someone has already taken our condemnation upon himself. That the case is closed, the trial is finished. That Jesus, who neither had a log in his eye nor a speck, set his sights towards the old, wooden, rugged cross. And the one who judges everything perfectly and had every right to judge, instead chose to take the logs that blind us and the specks that cloud us upon himself. And in humiliation was nailed to those logs. And the one who is perfectly just, simultaneously in the great generosity and grace of his heart, also became the justifier for each and every one of us who falls short of the perfect standard and so paid our penalty in our stead. And so now, by the power of the Spirit, for those who are followers of Jesus, we can see. We can see. May we not cover our eyes. And so pursue blindness, but instead now see through the shed blood of Jesus when we engage one another. Coming alongside of our brothers and sisters as a discerning rather than damning family of God. May it be so. Lord, have mercy. Christ, have mercy. Lord, have mercy on us. Let's pray. Jesus, the complexities of relationship, of community, of injustice, of brokenness are beyond simple solutions. And we find ourselves in a tension here as you, the wise sage, has the ultimate wisdom and guidance into life that guides us first into self-reflection and even self-confrontation in our own brokenness, that we need your grace to speak truth out of grace, longing for restoration of all that we come in contact with. And simultaneously, oh God, help us to see well. Give us humility, which only comes by recognizing our own blind spots. I pray for genuine reconciliation. I pray, Lord, that first reconciliation with you. And as I know the many schisms across our city, this is so crucial towards the way of peace. The divides that have crossed generations and historical wounds, may you give us guidance. 
of individual relationships and workspace and even within church, may you give us guidance. God, may we not be judgmental people, but may we not be stupid either. Make us wise as serpents and gentle as doves, as you say. And we're going to give you all the praise. Lord, have mercy. Amen.